Daniel chapter 7. We're going to go back in Daniel 7. There's, we, we, we dealt with 7 last week and sort of opened this chapter up, but there's some more in the area of interpretation and application that we kind of need to... I, I, want, to, I want to bring out some, some more wonderful truths that are here in that. And then how do we, how do we deal with this? How do we live with this today? Right? I mean, the news we just got. I mean, that's where we live, right? The death of a loved one. What does this say to that? Because if, if, if it doesn't say anything to that, then what good is it? Right? This is no ordinary book. It's not just some academic textbook that we like to look at and read and study. This is the very words of God. What do they have to say? What does Daniel have to say about who is in control of this world? Remember last week as we opened this, We're talking about history, and history is not just this collection of isolated events, random isolated events, things that just happen that have no connection at all. History is not cyclical. It's not just spinning out there somewhere, and it's just random events, fate, whatever you would have, luck of the draw. That's not the way in the Christian worldview that we view history. It's not the way I think God has revealed to us His activities in history and is creating the world. There's a beginning. There is an end coming. History's moving with purpose and design to something. And even though sometimes the events in it don't seem to make much sense to us, when we scratch our head and try to figure out how in the world does this fit into any of this, yet there is a purpose and design behind it all. And it is moving and building to an appointed end and purpose. And in that, there is hope. In that, there is comfort. So with history, there's a beginning and an end. Again, it's moving. The central event of all history, the watershed event of all history. Now, the secular historians won't say this. But the watershed central event of all history is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the division point. That's the dividing point of all history. And it unfolds from there. Everything before the cross, everything, the Old Covenant, Old Testament, everything before is building and pointing to the coming of Christ and pointing to the cross. And then after the cross, the New Testament, the New Covenant, and What we see after that is is pointing back and explaining this is what happened and this is how you're to live. And in that explanation, we get to see, even in the Old Covenant, we get to see glimpses of the end, which is Daniel 7, but we get to see that there is an end coming. And who is in control of all this? Is Satan in control of this? No. He's not. He's not in control of it. Is man in control of it? No. Are the politicians in control of it? No. Is some dictator 
Somewhere in the world in control of it, pulling the strings? No, there is one in control of all this, and that is God Himself. He is in control, and this is what we've seen in this section in Daniel 7, and it's what we've seen throughout the book of Daniel so far. God rules over history. Every bit, every point, every jot, every tittle, every minute detail from a sparrow falling to the ground to the number of hairs on your head, He rules over all history. He does. Christ's kingdom rules over all of the other kingdoms. The third thing that we were sort of pulling out of chapter 7 is that as saints, the saints will rule and reign with Christ for all eternity. But remember, please remember, that Daniel is not giving us a history lesson. He's not giving a history lesson and a timeline of events and things like that. He's not doing that. Daniel's making a theological statement. And in making a theological statement, we should rejoice in what we see and what we understand here. We should rejoice in it. We don't panic. We don't throw up our hands. We don't throw in the towel, even despite the fact that sometimes circumstances may look like evil has the upper hand. Even as you're gathering around the bed of a loved one who's just passed and the thoughts in your mind are that death won. No. It didn't win. Despite the circumstances or the appearance of the circumstances, God is in control. Always has been. Always will be. We started looking at Daniel. We, we sort of were taking apart chapter 7. And we were looking first at what is it actually saying? And then, and then interpretation. What does it mean? And then application. Sort of took the principle of what's called an inductive Bible study method. That's what you do. You study the Bible. First thing, observe what it says. Second, try to interpret it. And then third, I have to apply it and see how it applies. And so we were, we were taking that and applying it to... Daniel chapter 7 and looking at this section in in these three areas. Remember, Daniel 7 is a new section. The first six chapters are these wonderful stories that paint a beautiful picture of God. And in chapter 7 starts these visions. And we go back in time in chapter 7. Also, chapter 7 is the last chapter in Aramaic in Daniel. Chapter 2 was the first chapter. But very quickly, remember, let's, let's just take a moment and remember... What was this saying? You remember in verse 1 of chapter 7, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed when he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night. If you remember Belshazzar, first year, we've gone back 14, 15 years or so from the end of chapter 6. Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel has this dream, these visions. And it's interesting, it's in the plural. He had a dream and visions. Then verse 2, I spoke in, in my vision. So it must have been in this big vision. There was all sorts of things going on in this vision. 
He said, Behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet, like a man. And, the man's, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring and breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns, and I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. This first scene, as we just observed what it's saying, it was a scene of chaos. These four, these, these, Four winds coming. Is it coming from north, south, east, west, stirring up the great sea? The great sea in ancient times, uh, sort of symbolic of chaos. Somebody was stirring this up, and, and I think it was God. God's doing the stirring, and out of this sea comes chaos in these four beasts. But then the contrasting scene of the vision... Beginning in verse 9, we go from chaos to calmness. And I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. This is God. It's God. The only place here where uh, the Ancient of Days, this name is used for Him. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair on His head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before Him. A thousand thousands ministered to Him. Great number. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and books were opened. This is a judgment scene. You notice the description of him. He's white as snow, righteous, holy. His head was like pure wool. This wisdom and this fire, this throne of fiery flame, judgment. This is a scene of judgment. This is a courtroom. Chaos, and then all of a sudden we go to order and calm and this courtroom scene. The Ancient of Days is seated. And then verse 11, I watched then because of a sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. We'll identify him when we get to the interpretation. I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Some sort of judgment happens. And then, verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. All the peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. There's the, there's the vision. We just observe what is it saying. Chaos... Something stirring the great sea. Four great beasts come. And then all of a sudden we see the Ancient of Days. We see in the throne room. Love what one writer said, as I mentioned this last week. John looked into the abyss of human evil. And then looked into the very 
throne room of God. And he was shaken to the core. Because that's what he says when we get to the interpretation in verse 15. The Ancient of Days is seated, one like the Son of Man. This is Christ. Human evil and chaos and the sovereignty and control of God. So the interpretation in verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to the one who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. Who was this interpreter? Possibly an angel. Daniel's troubled. I don't understand. So he seeks out this interpreter. So he told me and made me to know the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. But then, verse 18, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, even forever and ever. So Daniel, what you saw were four kingdoms. Four kings. That's what you saw. Now this ties directly back to Daniel 2. We've already seen these kingdoms before. We've already seen these four great kingdoms. You have the lion. The first one is Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. We dealt with this a little bit last week as we sort of unpacked some of this. There was the bear. There's, that's Medo and Persia. The Persian Empire the leopard, Greece, the swiftness of which Alexander the Great conquered the world. And then the fourth beast, this fierce, terrible beast that John sees that wasn't like the other beast in some sense, in some way, is Rome. These are the four great kingdoms. But then John was interested in the fourth beast. Verse 19, Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, the ten horns were the ten, uh, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, arrogant, arrogant words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints. The very saints, in verse 18, who will reign. This little horn's making war against these very same saints, and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So out of Rome, out of these ten kings, comes this little horn, which is identified with the Antichrist. We see this in the New Testament. In fact, keep your finger here. I want you to go back. I want you to go to 2 Thessalonians. Let's trace this out. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. You remember this? We went through 2 Thessalonians and got to this section and dealt with the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come 
What day? Well, it's what he says concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1. Don't let anybody deceive you, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, is revealed, the son of perdition. Who is this man of lawlessness? It's the Antichrist. Who is he? He's the little horn of Daniel 7. The Antichrist. The one making more with the saints. When you look at Revelation, and you see Revelation 11, Revelation 12, Revelation 13, then you see this, this war that's made with the saints by the Antichrist, by the little horn, by the man of lawlessness. Go to 1 John. 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, verse 18. John says, little children, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. We are still in the last hour, by the way. We are still in that last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. But if you remember, John said something very interesting along the lines of the Antichrist is coming. The man of lawlessness, Paul says. But John says, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. That they, that they might be manifest, made manifest, that they were none of us. They weren't part of us. They were of the Antichrist. Chapter 4 of 1 John. John says, Beloved, do, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, and he says again, and is now already in the world. So John says there is this the sense in which there is this spirit of Antichrist, which is anti-Christ, that's already at work. But then when you look at Daniel 7, and then you look at Revelation chapter 13 and see that great beast of Revelation 13, which is identified with the Antichrist. There is one coming. There is one coming is not going to be a good fellow. And he's not going to be like these other kingdoms that have come and gone. He's not going to be like that. Something is going to be different about this one. And he's going to be fierce and ferocious. He's going to be arrogant. And there are other places we could go that, that seem to indicate that what he's going to try to do is set himself up as God. There's even an indication in Daniel 7 that that's what he's going to do. Because what he's going to try to do is change times and seasons. He's coming. This little horn is coming. So what do we do? Panic? No. 
Because remember, Daniel's not giving us a history lesson per se. He's not trying to help us figure out when he's coming. He's not trying to help us figure out the precise timing of all this and the signs of all this. Daniel is making a theological statement. Yeah, he'll arise, but you know who's really in control here? It's our God. Not him. Not him. So verse 23 in this is he says the ancient of days came in judgment. Eventually he's defeated, he's destroyed. Uh, Revelation chapter 18, Babylon, Babylon. That great Babylon, John says in Revelation, that great announcement, Babylon has fallen and is no more. It's over. This world system defeated, fallen, over. And who won? Our Savior did. Our Savior. Let me say this about His kingship. You know the greatest expression of His kingship? The greatest expression of the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ is not when He comes back on the white horse. The greatest expression of His kingship and the greatness of His kingdom was when He shed His blood. Not for His sins, but for our sins. And what He did in His death, burial, and resurrection from the grave was He defeated our greatest enemy. And it's not the Russians or the Chinese. It's not the Iranians. He defeated our greatest enemy, which is sin and death. That's a king. That's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's in control here. Well, we continue on as he says, Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. And he goes into this, the interpreter does, a little more about this fourth kingdom, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it to pieces. The ten horns of ten kings which shall arise from this kingdom... And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High. He goes after God's people. He goes after the saints. Who are the saints? Us. Those who are in Christ. I don't think the saints here are angels. I think he's talking about us, the followers of God, the people of God, the followers of Christ. And shall... And shall intend to change times and laws. He's so arrogant that he thinks he can do something only God can do. Then the saints will be given, uh, the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half times. I don't know, some take this to be a reference to the tribulation. Is this the tribulation period? Is this ruling and reigning the millennial period? I don't know. Times, times and half times. Is it three and a half years part of the tribulation period? Or is it just simply. A time. Uh, Kyle and Dalich, Kyle said that it was maybe symbolic of it starts fast, it looks like it's going to conquer, and then suddenly it's cut off. It's interesting, though, that it's time, times, plural, doesn't necessarily mean dual. So it may not be one year, two years, half year. But that's not what Daniel's doing. Daniel's not giving us, again, 
a timeline. He's making a theological statement. And they shall take away his dominion. Or after that time and times and half time. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion. This is the point. He thinks he has control. He thinks he has all of this. But he doesn't. The Ancient of Days is seated in his court. The Ancient of Days is the one who judges him. And the the Ancient of Days, they will take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. And the kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people. The saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. And then Daniel ended this with, this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. I kept this in my heart. This is where I want to go further in this application. We understand, yes, God rules over history, and all of history. Not just the external things, but the internal, the ideas, the thoughts, the worldviews. He rules over all of that. Christ's kingdom rules above all other kingdoms. And in that, we as His people, as saints, as those in Christ, rule and reign with Him. We're not defeated whipped puppies. We rule and reign with Him. Even now, it may not look like it, but we do. What does it mean for today? I mean, we tend to push all this future and say, yeah, I get it, man, in the future, if we're still around during the millennial or whatever, yeah, I get it, ruling and reigning Christ King, is His kingdom, His kingdom, is it now? Yeah, it's now. Is He ruling and reigning now? Yeah, He's ruling and reigning now. Yes, He is. Do we, in a sense, rule and reign with Him now? Yes, we do. Despite appearances. So it comes down to, do we dare trust Him in all of this? Do we dare trust Him? Do we dare trust Him to deal with death? To deal with evil? See, we live in a falling world. We do. We understand that. And it's growing more and more evil. It's growing more and more hostile to our faith, especially in this country. We feel it. We see it. We, we start to feel the pressure a little bit. So what do we do? Do we go into apocalyptic craziness and read something like Daniel 7 in the book of Revelation and go crazy and sell our houses and go wait on a mountain somewhere? No, we don't do that. We don't panic. We don't. We don't panic. I don't care who gets elected. We don't panic. I don't care what dictator spouts off tomorrow. We don't panic. They are not in control. There is evil. It's organized. It's actively opposing Christ. Remember John said it's already active. It's already in the world. It's already opposing Christ. It's already opposing His followers. It shows up in different forms. It shows up in different ideas, different worldviews, different people. It has throughout history shown up. And we see it and we go, that's evil. We see that. That was evil. Solomon said, you know, man invents ways to sin. He does. 
sinfulness of, of man hardens the heart, blinds the eyes, refusing to come to the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word, refusing to come to that. We see it. We live in it. The history of the world is one of oppression. Look at it. Even now, do you know democracy, freedom, is not the most popular game in town when you look at the world scene? In fact, the world is moving away from freedom. Do you realize that now? The world is moving towards tyrannical, oppressive regimes. The world's not saying, give us freedom. Western freedom is sort of a parenthesis when you look at world history because most of the world, most of world history was dominated by tyrants and oppressors. Western freedom hasn't always been there. Do you know how blessed we are to have been raised in the cradle of Western freedom? There is organized evil. It's at work. In a sense, you know, a time of peace is just really a ceasefire. Thank God for the ceasefires. This organized evil rebellion. From what I can understand of the Word of God, this is going to raise its ugly head and manifest itself in one person. And that's going to be the Antichrist. When? I don't know. I'm going to have a clue. I don't, but I know it's there. And we see it. This organized evil, this is another thing we need to understand. This organized evil is not... It's coming from rebellious, sinful, individual hearts. That's where it's coming from. It's coming from individual, rebellious, sinful hearts. It's not like people are just innocent running around and this sort of attaches to them from outer space somewhere. No, it's generated within the heart of a sinful, rebellious human being. It's where all tyrants begin, oppressors begin. It's where it all starts, from sinful individual hearts. It's not the way we were created. We were created perfect. We weren't created with this. And sin came and wrecked it all, and that's where it came from. But then came a Savior in Christ. Now, this is true of us individually, and it's true of us corporately as the people of God. There is an organized human spiritual evil at work. But, but, God rules over history. The Antichrist will not do something and catch God by surprise. Nebuchadnezzar didn't do something and catch God by surprise. He didn't. Belshazzar, as pagan as he was, didn't catch God by surprise, and Daniel's trying to figure out what to do. No, Daniel says, 
in spite of this pagan idiot, God rules history. He rules history. Christ has defeated our enemies. He's defeated our greatest enemies. His kingdom rules. His kingdom rules over all. But this is the glorious truth in all that because we track with that and we go, that's great, that's wonderful. I can at least theoretically, I can at least somehow say, yeah, I'm with you. I believe that stuff. Yeah, right, great, wonderful. This is where we don't often focus and that is that we rule and reign with Him. We are no second class citizens. We rule and reign with Him. In Christ. And I have to emphasize in Christ. Because there's in Christ and there's out of Christ. And that's it. That's the only two options. There's not in between. There's not half in, half out. There's not in on Sundays and Wednesdays and out on the rest of the days of the week. There's not in sometimes when I like it and it's popular and it's cool and it's convenient and I'm out when it's not convenient. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you're out of Christ. And if you're out of Christ, you are not in Christ, you're not okay. You are already under the sway of the evil one. You are already under His kingship and dominion and He is a tyrannical ruler who is ruling your heart and your mind right now. And has blinded you to the truth of the Gospel. And you can't see it. In Christ, we win. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means I come to Him as my Savior. I turn from my sin. He's the one who died on a cross, was buried, raised the third day. I understand I can't save myself. I understand I I need a Savior. But I turn from my sin and put my faith and trust in Him alone. The one who shed His blood for my sin. The one who was raised the third day. And I come, all of me, all of me, all that I am in my sinful rebellion, I come to Him and say, here I am, save me. I can't save myself. And if you don't save me, I can't be saved. And what does He do? He saves. I'm in Christ. In Christ, we win. We rule and we reign. Whatever it will look like in the future, I don't know. Whatever, however it's going to play out in the future, I don't know. I don't have a full handle on that. But I do know that it has already started. And we're in it now. And we are ruling and reigning with Him now. And it's only going to get more glorious. 
And there's coming a day when this is all over and the judgment happens and we are with him for all eternity. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when he says to the Corinthians, he tells them, and they're squabbling over their issues in the church and they're squabbling over this and squabbling over that and taking it to judge and taking it to court. And Paul says, don't you guys understand? One day you will judge the world's. Don't you understand, one day you, as believers, will sit and judge the angels. Why? Because we rule and reign with Him. It's the way the book of Revelation ends. There in chapter 22. When it's talking about us as saints, and it says about us as saints, we rule and reign with Christ. After all that happens in the book of Revelation, particularly beginning in chapter 6 to the end, particularly chapter 6 to chapter 18, after all that stuff that happens, whatever it is, how bad it gets, however bad it gets, this is the truth. This is the theological truth of Daniel. This is where this hits me today. No matter how bad it can get, and no matter the circumstances, that my sin is winning the day, God rules over it all. And if I'm His, and He is mine, That stuff's defeated. It's defeated. Why live it anymore? Why live in it anymore? Why do we seek it? Why do we get up every day and seek the things of this world? Didn't Jesus tell us, seek first His kingdom? Why? Because His kingdom rules over all. And in that, we rule and reign. He tells us to seek first His kingdom, doesn't He? And then everything else will be added. All this other stuff will be added. We seek His kingdom.